I'll come back w once more tonight to the purification of virtue, where we had ten virtues, of which I only explained nine. I left out the second one, morality, moral conduct. And most of you will be familiar with the five precepts. And they are really our basis for human life. Now most of you have probably heard them and they are an important aspect of the whole of the practice. The Buddha worded these as a training. He said, I undertake the training to refrain from. He didn't say, thou shalt not, you must not, or that there would be punishment for breaking any of the precepts. He said we are undertaking a training. And by undertaking this training, obviously, there's always a chance of making a mistake. If that happens, one just undertakes the training again by making a new determination. There's no such concept in the Buddha's teaching as sin. There's only the concept of cause and effect. And the causes which we put into the stream of life, they have effects upon us. These five precepts are all things to refrain from. Four of them are actions, and one of them is speech. Naturally, as we know now, or have always known, our speech and action results from our thinking. But the precepts are particularly worded for speech and action. The supreme efforts are worded for our thoughts. Now we undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. But beyond that, we also undertake the training to do the opposite. It's not enough to refrain from the cruelty. It is essential to practice the opposite, love and compassion. Now, we've already discussed that. And if you remember, I said that the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. And obviously, killing is cruelty. Killing, no matter what, whom, how, is always connected with hate. So the whole thing boils down to the fact that we're trying to protect ourselves from hate. That we're trying to protect ourselves from the action of hate, even if the feeling still arises. 
Well, there's never any justification of any sort, but it only concerns the actual act of killing. It does not concern anything that is connected in a chain reaction. We are concerned with our actions. So the, the precepts are geared towards protection for ourselves with which we protect everybody else. When we protect ourselves, we protect everyone also. There's a very nice story about this from the Buddhist time. There was an acrobat in the Buddhist time who had a little girl assistant. And in those days, acrobats were the kind of entertainment that went to the villages. The little girl had a nickname, was called Little Fat Pot. (laughs) She was probably extremely thin because the kind of work she had to do would have required that. The act which they had worked out together was that the acrobat balanced a 20-foot long pole on his head and spun it in one direction and little fat pot would get up on the top of this pole and stand on their head on a little disc and spin herself in the other direction. It's a very popular act and they went to practice it every morning so that they would be perfect. And this particular morning the, again, the practice session was to start and the acrobat said to the little assistant, now you watch out for me and you protect me and I'll protect you and then we'll be safe and our act will go over well in the villages. And little fat pot said, no, not at all like that. I'm going to protect myself and you protect yourself and then we'll be safe and our act will go over well in the villages. Acrobat was a bit taken aback that she should talk back to him but he started thinking about it and he went to see the Buddha and inquired from him what he should do about such a naughty little assistant that was talking back to him. The Buddha said, little fat pot was absolutely correct. We protect ourselves and then everybody is protected from any wrongdoing. So when he heard that, he had little more regard for her. And this applies to the precepts. We protect ourselves and everybody is protected from us. The cultivation of the opposite of killing, of loving-kindness and compassion is our practice in everyday life. And not killing is also our practice in everyday life. We are probably not concerned with not killing other human beings 
we wouldn't be here if we've had that misfortune in this life. But we may be tempted to kill insects, mice and rats, and other kind of um, living creatures which may invade our homes and we think that they should live somewhere else. Naturally, they should live somewhere else, but we don't have to kill them. If we kill them, it's an act of hate. So we have to be careful. Now, there are always questions about that. What about the lice on my roses? And what about the ants in the, in the pantry? And what about the cockroaches in my uh, guest cottage? And all the rest of that. Everybody's got to come, come to terms with that themselves. The instructions are clear. Just as clear as about the meditation. One should do the eight meditative absorptions. Can we or can't we? All we can do is try. It's the same here. The instructions are clear. Can we or can't we? We'll try. We'll do our best. And everybody has to live with their own idea of what's right and what's wrong. There's nobody that can be judge and jury. The second precept concerns not taking what is not given. Now, obviously, that concerns stealing, but it goes further than that. It concerns not taking anything that is not specifically one's own. Applies to the smallest things. That one is as careful with other people's belongings as with one's own or more careful and never takes anything that wasn't specifically handed to one or told that one can have it. Now, the opposite of that is obviously generosity, giving instead of taking. And I've already talked about that at some length. The not taking what's not given is to counteract the greed in our hearts. And as you now know, or may have always known, we've all got it. It's part and parcel of being a human being. It's a universal problem. It's not a personal one. Greed, hate, and delusion are the three roots of evil with which we are born. And we also have the other three, the three roots of good. So when we take precepts and try to abide by them, it's not enough to refrain just from doing the bad things. We need to cultivate the good. Not only because it will purify us, but because it is the greatest support system we can get for not doing the wrong things. The third one is to undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Sexual misconduct is considered to be 
hurting another person physically or emotionally. The opposite of that is being reliable, responsible, faithful. And it's not only in our sexual relationships, which are usually the most disturbing ones, especially when one is younger. But it's in all our relationships that we need to have faithfulness, reliability, responsibility, where others know that they can rely upon us, but primarily that we know we can rely upon ourselves, that we're not going to be swayed by our emotions to do things which could be hurtful. And when they're hurtful to others, they're definitely hurtful to ourselves. It's not only our conscience that's going to speak to us, but there's going to be turmoil in the heart. There always is. Now, our responsibility and our reliability, which means that we do not break our promises, that we know we're going to follow through on that which we have undertaken, gives us ourselves a feeling of security. That others then have also benefit from that is a byproduct, a natural byproduct. First of all, we ourselves feel solid and rock-like. We know very well that no matter what happens, we can rely upon our own responses. And when we know we can rely upon our own responses, we feel secure within ourselves. The temptations in the world are without end. They arise and they cease and they arise and they cease. They are everywhere. And Maybe the less we have tasted of them, the more tempting they seem. Once we have tasted some of them or have tasted them a little, we know that they're just as fleeting and ceasing as everything else, that they come and they go and they cannot fulfill the yearning in the heart, which has an entirely different aim and goal than being momentarily pleased. Our relationship with other people has to be built up upon the faithfulness to our friends, our relations, our family, our colleagues, the, our kindness to them and love towards them, but primarily also learning to be a noble friend. A noble friend is someone who can be relied upon, who is there in thick or thin. It doesn't matter whether it rains or shines, the friend remains a friend. And that kind of feeling about oneself 
of course also generates friendship and responses in other people's hearts. So if we are possibly lamenting the fact that we haven't got very good friends or not very many, we'll have to look to see whether we are a good friend, reliable and responsible, faithful, at call, willing and able to help, willing and able to relate to another person on a deeper level than just superficialities. And that relating to other people need not always be just on a sexual level. The sexual relationships are usually the ones that are fraught with the most difficulties. And that's why the Buddha also mentioned that one specifically. Because the difficulties arise because of clinging and craving, because of jealousy and envy, because of expectations. When we come to terms with our own expectation of others, we will see that that expectation first has to be fulfilled within ourselves. The fourth precept is to undertake the training to refrain from lying, harsh speech, backbiting, gossiping, idle chatter. In other words, refraining from the wrong kind of speech. Now this is, strangely enough, although it doesn't sound so difficult, the hardest precept to keep. Idle chatter is the one that is usually everybody's downfall. Idle chatter means talking for talking's sake. It is probably the cheapest, most easily available public entertainment talking. We can always find someone to talk to if nobody's there, the telephone, the radio, the television, or if none of that's available, the mind will chatter to itself. (laughs) It does a good job of it too. It always has something to say. And even if it has said the same thing already many times, It doesn't mind repeating it. (laughs) Idle chatter is considered to be the kind of talking which doesn't have any purpose behind it. No purpose whatsoever. Now if you, for instance, ask someone how they're feeling and we actually want to indicate by that that we're concerned with their welfare, That's not idle chatter. If we talk to a a neighbor 
about their roses because we want to show them that we're interested in their activities, in their hobby, in their home and garden. That's not idle chatter. It's the intention behind it. If we just go over there to just spend time talking about nothing at all and nobody feels elevated or happy about it afterwards, that's idle chatter. Talking to each other should not only have purpose, but it should also bring about a feeling of nearness, togetherness, and it should be about a topic which has some meaning for both people, a meaning which is elevating, which makes the mind happy, which brings new information, which is useful and valuable. There are many topics which the Buddha said were not useful to talk about. Politics, for men to talk about women, for women to talk about men, Crimes, entertainment, many more, which are not so applicable today anymore. But these are applicable to us. War, war is another one not to talk about. All of these pull the mind down they bring the mind into a state of where it either has resistance and rejection or it has craving. And since we have enough of both already, we should not induce the mind to get more by talking about such subjects. So we could say on a general level, the subjects to avoid are those that create more craving or more dislike more rejection. The subjects that are worthwhile talking about are those that create a space in the mind where it feels at ease, where it feels that it has come into contact with something that brings happiness and joy. All spiritual teachings which are worthwhile talking about would have that particular quality. Now obviously we can't go about talking to everybody about the Buddha's teaching. <laughs> we won't have many friends left after that. But we could take pains to use our conversations for the best possible purpose for to talk about things which are really meaningful to our hearts and minds, where we can see that there are other ways of thinking about problems, other ways of thinking about desires which we have. So if we have people that we can talk to in that manner, we're very fortunate and, on the other hand, we need to develop in ourselves that capacity. 
wrong speech is obviously lying and I have already mentioned that before it's also harsh speech it's backbiting setting friends against each other talking about people behind their backs which will then put another person against them this is a very delicate subject because there are sometimes necessities for saying something in order to protect a person from some difficulty so we have to be sure in our minds what the intention is karma o monks I declare is intention whether we are intentionally saying something to put another person down just for the sake of doing so or whether we're saying something about another person because we feel that the other person needs to be protected from making a mistake. We have to look at our own intention. It's the motivations which make it right or wrong. Everybody has to be their own judge on that. The Buddha said a very interesting thing about speech which is very important for all of us to know. He gave a formula and he said, if we know something that can be hurtful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know something that we think could be helpful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know something that could be hurtful and is true, don't say it. If we know something that we think could be helpful and is true, find the right time, which should protect us from impulsive speaking. When is the right time to say something that is helpful and true? The right time to tell another person something that we think must be helpful to them, and it's also true, is the time when we have complete loving-kindness for that other person, not the slightest shred of any resi resistance or rejection, any resentment, any kind of um, feeling superior, nothing of the sort. Only when we feel totally loving towards the other person is the right time. Also, when both people are willing and able to listen or to speak. In other words, there has to be that kind of leisure, not on a spur of a moment while we're walking through the kitchen to say something and then expect some results from that but to sit down at leisure and talk to each other but only when there is real love in the heart for the other person now all of us have occasions to try to tell another person that we don't agree with them on something or other and are completely convinced that whatever it is we are saying is going to be helpful to them We've got to check that out and see whether it isn't 
the case that it would be helpful to us may have nothing to do with being helpful to them. Maybe it would make life easier for us if they changed their ways. But if that's the case, we'll have to check that out again and then start our conversation in an entirely different manner. Namely by saying, I am having this problem, not you are having this problem. (laughs) So we have to check out and see whether we're actually talking about another person's problem or about our own. We're probably often inclined to talk about our own problems because they are the most important ones, aren't they? (laughs) And think that they are somebody else's problems. So we need to investigate that before we start this kind of conversation. But as you can see, the Buddha put great stock on speaking correctly. And that is because we do so much of it. Now, in a silent meditation course, we don't do that much of it, but that's only a very rare occasion. Usually, we do a lot of speaking. And therefore, we really need to have a grip on that. It isn't just being polite, although that too is right speech. It's the loving kindness towards others to be polite. But there's more to it than that. Politeness can be extremely superficial and it can also have idle chatter in it. It doesn't need to mean anything. It's just mechanical. So we need to look at our motivations in that. There's a discourse of the Buddha, the Mahamangala Sutta, which means the Great Blessings Discourse, where speech is one of the 38 blessings, right kind of speech. (coughs) Lying is a matter of trying to hide from the truth. The Buddha had a little son. His name was Rahula, which means the fetter. And when the little boy was born, the Buddha left the palace and the family in order to find the answer to human dukkha and returned to the palace when the little boy was seven years old. That was when the Buddha had become enlightened. And he gave a discourse to Rahula called the Rahula Vada Sutta. And in it, he talks to Rahula about lying. Now this is a topic for all children. Children are very often tempted to tell stories, tall tales, or trying to protect themselves from punishment because they've done something they know very well they shouldn't be doing. So he gives this discourse to Rahula and he tells about lying in a very graphic way. He says to Rahula, Now, look here, I have a ladle here. And what do you see in that ladle? And Rahula says, well, I see some water in it. And Buddha says, that's right. Now, I'm going to turn the ladle upside down. And now you can have another look at it. And Rahula said, oh, well, now it's empty. And the Buddha said, that's right. A person who lies is empty of goodness. 
And then he shows him a, um, a jug with water. And he says, what do you see here? And he says, oh, I can see a jug with water. And then the Buddha turned the jug upside down. And he said, what do you see now? He says, oh, I see the jug upside down. He says, that's right. A person who lies turns their lives upside down. So he's giving him a very graphic description of what's wrong with lying. And he's also showed him a mirror. And he said to him, what's that? He said, that's a mirror. And he said, well, what's it for? He says, well, it's for seeing myself. And he said, that's right. But a person who lies will never see themselves truly. So if we are tempted to lie for our protection, which is not unusual, we will not see ourselves truly because we will refrain from self-honesty. It doesn't really matter about others. It's our own life that's at stake and it's our own happiness that's at stake. So if we are tempted to sometimes say things which are not quite so, it's only because we're either wanting to make ourselves more important or because we are afraid that others may think something of us which we don't want them to think. So we are hiding from ourselves. The Buddha also said that it includes not to exaggerate and not to underrate. So in other words, lying includes that, that if we go to a person's house and we want to tell how important the meeting was, that we come home and say, oh, there were dozens of people there, but maybe there were ten altogether. So we should make very sure what we're talking about. And that means that we take time, time to consider what we're actually saying. There's no hurry. We're actually all going to the same place, the cemetery. And there's no hurry to get there. We've got plenty of time. So we can consider what we're saying and underrate if, for instance, we live with another person and um, say good morning to that person and then say to that person, you never say good morning to me first. <laughs> well, maybe seldom or rarely, but certainly not never. That's underrating it. That's the same as exaggerating it. It's not true. So if we are very careful with our words, that means at the same time we're very careful with our thoughts. We're really protecting ourselves. We're protecting that jewel of a mind which has the seed of enlightenment in it. We're very, very protective of our own inner being. Speech is a very important thing, but it has a whole lot of support systems. I talked to a woman once in Australia who gives <coughs> communication workshops. 
Mind you, that tells something about us. We have to learn to communicate with each other. And she told me that it has been established that the spoken word is only 7% of our communication, that the rest, the other 93%, are made up of body language, facial expression, tone of voice, and the whole feeling which comes from the person themselves, which is behind the word, which has far more impact than the words themselves. So that's why it's so important that we recognize how we feel when we start talking to another person. And which also explains why in the Buddha's time people would listen to one discourse of the Buddha and become enlightened. Nowadays, we are already on tape number 13. (laughs) But of course, we haven't got the Buddha. (laughs) But what came out from the Buddha behind his words was the enlightenment principle. These words that he spoke are available to us. They are written down. But the Buddha isn't available to us. So our own being also emanates vibrations. There's no doubt about it that we have those vibrations and also receive them. If a person walks into a room in, in, in which we are and sits down on a chair, doesn't say a single word, we can tell whether that person is very angry or peaceful or disinterested. Just by the way he walks in, he or she walks in, sits down and looks around. Mm -hmm. We can tell. Words are not even necessary. So we can't do anything about other people's vibrations. Sometimes we may have to protect ourselves from them. But we can certainly do something about our own. And we have to live with them, with our own vibrations. And that's what we need to work on. The protection which we can have when other vibrations are there which are detrimental to our well-being is surrounding ourselves with loving-kindness towards ourselves and others. Speech has our whole personality behind it. And when we try to either hide that or develop it, we will see that the more we develop it together with love and truthfulness and equanimity, the more effect the speech will have on others. And often people are in a position where they would like to have some effect on another person, especially the ones one lives with. One would like to have an effect on them when one says something. And very often the words fall on deaf ears. (coughs) It's not unusual. We need to develop the ability which we all have cultivated more so that 
the feeling comes through. The fifth precept is to undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs because they confuse the mind even more than it is already confused. <laughs> it's no use asking whether even a little is included. It's up to each person. Intoxicating drinks and drugs are intoxicating drinks and drugs. That's all they are. The opposite of that is mindfulness. Mindfulness which we practice in meditation and which we need to practice in everyday life. Mindfulness is the sharpness of the mind, of being totally there, of knowing actually what's going on, to having one-pointed attention. Now we train ourselves in that. And this training, as we continue with the meditation, will eventually result in a mind which has much more clarity. We can't tell the difference right now because the mind is just the way it is. So we don't really know what it's like to have a mind which has more clarity. But as we practice and proceed on this path and purify the emotions and purify <coughs> our moral conduct in all aspects, the mind has no choice except to have more clarity. It becomes a mind which has more strength, more muscles, because the strength is not being dissipated into avenues which are not useful or beneficial to ourselves. So we are conserving our strengths, and with that conservation of strengths, the mind has far more of it and therefore far more clarity. The mindfulness which is practiced by attention on the meditation subject has to have support in daily living. And our daily living mindfulness obviously is supported by our meditation mindfulness. The two work hand in hand. And obviously we won't be perfect. But every time we lose our mindfulness and become aware that we have lost it. We are mindful again. The awareness of having lost the mindfulness means we have become mindful again. When we walk through life just trying to do what is necessary without attention to body, feeling, mental direction or mental content, then we often feel ourselves in a foggy state of mind where we forget. Mindfulness has great mundane benefits which are extremely useful. We don't have to run through the house searching for where we put our car keys. We don't have to um, try to remember where the bank book is. 
We don't have to try to try and find the uh, things that we think are in the pockets but have been left on the nightstand and all these type of things which make life more complicated. But that's only the very beginning. Mindfulness makes us more efficient because we attend to one thing at a time. One thing only. So the efficiency of the person who practices mindfulness is vastly enhanced. And the stress factor is vastly diminished. Because if we think of one thing at a time, the mind does not have any space left over to worry about all the other things it has to do. It can do one thing at a time. But that's only the mundane aspect of it. The spiritual aspect is that we actually begin to know something more about our reality of who we really are. So the practice of mindfulness can of course not be successfully done if our Mm -hmm. mind is intoxicated, if it's impaired through any substance. And you can see from this precept that the people two and a half thousand years ago had the same problems. Johnny Walker might have been going for a hundred years, but they just had different things, different names, same substance. So nothing has changed. It's all the same as it's always been. And there's only the few that will get themselves out of this by primarily starting with that kind of base on which the mind... Another great benefit, we have no remorse. We do not have to be sad about anything we have done or blame ourselves. Blaming ourselves is not useful anyway, but remorse is something that arises in people's minds when they know they've done something which is uh, not beneficial. So without remorse, it's much easier to be joyful. And when we are joyful, it's much easier to concentrate. And when we can concentrate, it's much easier to have super mundane levels of awareness which show us reality in a different light. There's a story of a monk in the Buddhist time who had been meditating for 20 years and never got concentrated. So he became very sad and depressed. And he became so depressed that he thought he was useless. And he decided to kill himself. So he got himself a rope and he clambered up a tree and he tied the rope to a branch and then he tied the other end of the rope to his own neck and then he was just about to jump off when he remembered that for 20 years he had kept all the precepts pure. And at that moment his heart and mind became very joyful. So he took the rope off again 
clambered down from the tree and decided to continue with his practice. And the story says that very soon after that, he did become concentrated. And at the end of life, he even became enlightened. So the keeping of the precepts, while it isn't the only practice, is a basis for our feeling at ease with ourselves. And if we don't feel at ease with ourselves, we can't really sit at ease. We have to be comfortable in mind and body in order to meditate successfully. If we have broken precepts in the past, that's the past, that's finished. That was dukkha. If we now still think of it and are sad about it, we've got double dukkha again. One dukkha is plenty. We've all got dukkha. We don't have to double it up. What we learn from having broken precepts in the past is the fact that that has not given us happiness. It may have given us momentary pleasure, but it hasn't given happiness. So having done so, we have tasted the apple in that paradise of which we, out of which we got thrown, and knowing that the apple didn't really taste that good, we don't have to bite into it again. That's all we learn from it. I don't have to do it again. It's all right, I've tried it. And having done so, may be much easier not to do it again. There's a very interesting story from the Buddha's time which is very lengthy, but I'll try and tell it to you in a very short version. There was a... I don't know where to start to make it short. (laughs) In the Buddha's time, it was common to send sons from good families to teachers in what is now Taxila in India, That was a sort of university town. They didn't have universities like we know them today, but they had teachers living there that the sons could live with and be taught, and the parents had to pay a fee for that, which was quite steep. So one particular boy was sent to a teacher, and he was the very best student in the house. There were six students in the house. And the other students were very jealous of him. So they tried to tell lies about him, about all sorts of bad things that he was supposed to have done to the teacher so that the teacher wouldn't prefer him so much. But the teacher wouldn't believe any of it. So then one day, the teacher went on a trip. And when he came back, the students, the other students, the other five, went to him and started saying that something terrible had happened and they wouldn't come out with it. Well, finally, the teacher insisted and they said that this very um, this um, preferred student had had sexual relations with the teacher's wife. Well, of course, that went one step too far. So the teacher said that uh, he would do something about it. And when the parents sent the yearly fee to the teacher... He refused it. 
And he said to the boy, he said he should go out in the forest and bring him 1,000 fingers of paper instead of the fee. Because all he wanted was to get rid of him. Because he didn't want him in the house, because he sort of believed that this story was true. But the boy didn't realize that, that this story had been told about him. And didn't realize that the teacher just wanted to get rid of him. He thought that he really had to do this because the teacher told him, an Indian teacher is a very important person, that he should bring 1,000 fingers of people to the teacher. So he went into the forest and started killing people to get their finger. And in the beginning, he stuck the finger up on a, um, on a dead tree. And then the crows came and ate the fingers. So he then threaded them on a, um, on a thread and hung them around his neck. And that's why his name is, or was, Angulimala. Mala is a necklace, and Anguli means finger. So he was called Finger Necklace. And he became extremely famous for being such a terrible murderer. And nobody wanted to go near this forest anymore. So he collected finger after finger, and he had already 999 fingers when his parents had found out finally where he was. And his mother came to stop him from doing this terrible thing. And the Buddha saw with his clairvoyance that the mother was on the way to the forest and that Angulimala had by this time become so uh, cruel and such a a terrible person that he would actually kill his mother to get the last finger. And so the Buddha decided to stop him from that because he realized that Angulimala actually had the potential of becoming enlightened and had only done this in his mistaken view because he thought he should do what the teacher said. So the Buddha went to the forest and walked in front of Angulimala. And Angulimala saw him and thought to himself, hey, that's great, one single monk, that's easy to kill. I'll get my last finger. And he ran after the monk. And the Buddha was walking quite normally, and yet Angulimala was unable to catch up with him. So he yelled and said, stop, stop. The Buddha turned around to him and said, I have already stopped, but have you? And stood still. And Agulimala came up to him and said, What do you mean? What are you talking about? What have you stopped? The Buddha said, I have stopped killing living beings. I have stopped taking what's not given. And he recited the precepts to him. And Agulimala was so taken back by that that he said to him, I want to come with you. I want to also do that. So the Buddha took Angulimala to his monastery, made him into a monk, and he had a dreadful time of it, of course. But in the end, he became enlightened. And the reason this story is important for us is to know that we haven't killed 999 people. So anything that we may have done in the past is 
nothing compared to such a crime, and yet Angulimala became enlightened. We can reverse the karma in such a way because of practice. Naturally, Angulimala practiced very assiduously and uh, was very devoted to the Buddha and um, became, of course, completely moral. But nothing that we have done in the past is irreversible for us in, the, in this life at this time. It's a matter of conviction, determination, and practice. The five precepts are the basis for a harmonious and peaceful human life. They do not constitute all of it. Naturally, we need more. But without them, we have guaranteed problems. And since we already have enough problems, we don't have to add to them. It is a practice in Buddhism, as quite a number of you must know, to take refuge in precepts. And tomorrow morning, I will talk about refuge, explain it in detail, and those of you who want to can take refuge in precepts tomorrow. But I'll explain that all tomorrow. That's enough for one evening. Do you have any questions about anything? Yes. Sorry, I couldn't hear. What? Usually, I'm a vegetarian. Mm -hmm. But sometimes when I go to eat at the hands of other people, they um, offer me food which has um, meat or something like that. And sometimes uh, they've gone to quite a lot of trouble to do that. And I never really know what's the thing to do to risk offending them and hurting their feelings perhaps by not eating the food that they've prepared or to not eat it and risk that. No, it's much better to thank them kindly and eat it. Killing has nothing to do with vegetarianism. It's our act of killing. The Buddha did not say to be vegetarian. He said to do whatever one feels right to do, either this or that, but he said not to kill. So since that is not the question, when you're invited to a meal where whatever you're getting has long been dead, be grateful for it. That question arises in every course and is usually a cause for discussion. Let's not make this a meal discussion. <laughs> yes. Sorry, it's not a big question, but it's something that does worry me. It's the Buddhist prohibition on talking about politics and women talking about men. I mean, I agree that politics can be very destructive, but I do think it's the art of the possible. And if one, say, 
in a pressure group um, to bring in uh, larger family allowances for children um, or the other topic that we've been talking about men um, if one can use it with Meta say like Christina Feldman to help women empower themselves then surely those two topics are allowable it depends how one's approaching them I don't know what you mean talking about it with Meta like Christina Feldman I'm sorry I have no connection I don't know what you're talking about Oh, sorry, I was thinking of her. Um, and I don't know how women empower themselves by talking about men. Well, well, obviously what is meant are sexual connotations. I thought that was quite clear, to arouse, which arouse greed. I mean, that's all that's meant. Oh, I see. I, I was just thinking about talking about patriarchy. I mean, it can... Um, well, the Buddha had nothing to do with patriarchy. In his day and time, everything was patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and politics does not mean to help children. That's not what, it's all, what politics meant when I was using the word. He didn't use that word. It means talking about the, uh, the, st the state of the government and der deriding the ministers and being angry about... Um, the uh, the the things that happen, that that uh, creates hate. It doesn't mean to better to better anything. Naturally, you can do whatever you can do to make things better. Do it, but talking about it isn't going to do it. One has to do it. Talking about it is done at the universities. They have never yet bettered anything. <laughs> They're the greatest talkers and the least doers. <laughs> Sorry? Uh, no, not necessarily. Maybe you can better it. <laughs> Maybe you can improve it. <laughs> Maybe, I wouldn't know. I have no idea. I neither vote nor talk about it. <laughs> but I mean, from that point of view, you wouldn't be against talking about policies if it's to do something constructive for the future that, that actually with, is within Dharmic principles. Yes, of course, that's okay. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. And the Buddha didn't use that word. He he said ministers and and uh, war and this kind of thing. Yes. Are you asking me how is it possible, or how is it done? I will do that tomorrow. It's just uh, same or we'll do it. We'll do it. And um, we don't call it transferring, we call it sharing. We share our merits. We don't, uh, well, it's, I mean, in essence, it's probably exactly the same, but we say sharing. Anything else? Gee, that's nice. We got away from vegetarianism quickly. <laughs> 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 I
I don't really mind saying the same thing over and over again for 16 years, but this is one topic I just refuse to, to enter into again and again. <laughs> Any other questions? May I put that, which I suppose was quite odd to me by YouTube vegetarianism, because it's much wider, which is about, and I suppose what the difference to me between killing and meat is about, and, and I think it would apply to all the precepts, is does the Buddha say very much about sort of expecting other, pe other people in a way to break precepts on our behalf? things like maybe war, you know, we might not want to pull the trigger, but we might expect somebody else to and kind of try to justify it. Is there anything said about the ethical implications of sort of being party to somebody else breaking a precept and then seeking comments? Being party to somebody else breaking a precept, if you know about it, that's the same as if you were breaking the precept yourself. I mean, that, that, would, that would not, I mean, that's accessory uh, before the fact or after the fact or something. I mean, that's even punishable by the, lo by the law of the, of the land. That's, that's exactly the same as breaking the precept. See, now, uh, for instance, as far as killing goes, um, this does not apply to lay people, but nuns and monks cannot eat any meat where they know that it was killed for them or where they actually saw it being killed for them or where they suspect that it was being killed for them because it would make them a, an a, a accessory to the fact. So that's the same as breaking the precept. So there you can't, can't uh, distinguish between the two. What example did you have? Killing what? Well, I suppose, I mean, for me, that's why I'm a vegetarian because I suppose... That's my go-to butcher and buy meat. Okay, he didn't kill it specifically for me. Yeah, well, that's your own uh, own way of looking at it. That's quite great. That's fine. That's not the way the Buddha looked at it, but that's fine. But, but, but the general principle is there, and maybe that's my interpretation. No, the general principle is a direct personal relationship to it. That's a principle that the Buddha operated under a direct personal relationship to it, not one that is uh, removed, not like that. But it's fine to, to take it to there. It's, it's, uh, it's great. Anything else? Yes? Sorry, it's on number three, the sexual misconduct. Um, the Buddha had very little to say about um, how much Good sexual conduct can help, i.e., um, love between two human beings that really can spark much more matter. Um, but do, do you think he perhaps underestimated um, that, that, that aspect? And he had more to say that's negative. Well, to tell the truth, I can't tell you what I think, what he, what he did or didn't do. I, um, but sexual liberation hadn't been heard of yet. <laughs> so that, that I can tell you. And uh, whether he... Uh, I don't think that he underrated the positivity of it. I think the negativity of it is well known to everybody. I don't need to even have to discuss it. Everybody knows what, it, what happens 
when there's sexual misconduct, nothing but grief, immense grief in some cases. So, obviously it's not a good thing to do. It's quite simple. May I suggest to you that at this point in time you're trying to find those things which you could possibly worry about because you've used the word many times now so that the practice doesn't seem to be quite as important. Forget it. <laughs> it doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a common dilemma. It's a very common dilemma. You know, when the practice isn't really the main thing, then we try to find our ways out. There are dozens of things you can find. Hundreds of them. I can show you places in the Pali Canon where supposedly the Buddha speaks against women. Supposedly. Is that a reason to stop practicing, not become enlightened? <laughs> One can find so many reasons. And they've all been found already. <laughs> you don't have to start again. <laughs> Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of yourself as your own mother and child. The child that is growing up and wants its own way. And the mother who loves it and cares for it and gives it the best possible advice embraces it at this feeling for yourself as being your own child arising you 
feel towards yourself as you would towards your own child. Now think of the person sitting nearest you as your child. Love that person like a mother would. Helpful, accepting, caring, embracing. Fill him or her with the love that a mother has for her child. Think of everybody here as your children, a large family. Fill and embrace everybody with the love that a mother has for her children. Caring and concerned, helpful, wishing and assisting with the growth of the child. Think of your parents and reverse the role 
Let the parents be the children, and you are the mother. Loving and caring, no matter what they do. Helping to grow. Fill them and surround them with your love. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Think of them as your children. Caring and concerned for them, loving them, embracing them, like a mother does with her children. Think of all your good friends. Think of yourself as their mother and they as your children, the large family. Give them your heart. Fill them with your care and concern. Surround them with your love. Think of your acquaintances, relatives, people you meet here and there, neighbors, people at work. Think of all of them as your children. 
embrace them as their mother, feeling quite close, concerned and caring, loving, holding them in your heart. Think of anyone with whom you may have difficulties. Think of that person as your own child. Children often make difficulties. A mother loves them nevertheless. Love that person in spite of all difficulties. Letting that person also find a home in your heart. Now think of yourself as a mother of people near and far. And let your love and care and concern reach out to people around here and further away, all those that you can think of, envision, a family of mankind to which all of us belong, one family. Let the heart open and pour out its love for your own family of mankind.
Now put your attention back on yourself. See the child in you and the mother. The one who knows what's good for you and the child that often doesn't wish to obey. Love yourself as that child, just as a mother would. With all the faults and the difficulties, just loving, no judging. May all people love each other as one family.